Thank you, youth, for being our ushers today. Uh, and uh, we've got a lot of really kind of great things going on here at Morning Hour Chapel lately. Uh, one of the things that uh, we're doing next week on uh, March the 13th is we're going to be welcoming five new members uh, to Morning Hour Chapel. And uh, with five new members actually comes 13 people in three families. Uh, so we're really excited uh, to uh, bring them into our, our church uh, membership. Uh, and uh, next week we will, we will welcome them formally into that membership. So I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about the things I'm seeing with the youth group. Uh, we are just uh, so blessed to have Becky here uh, to get the youth involved, to get them uh, doing things. Uh, I'm really, really, really looking forward to the spaghetti dinner. Um, I'm hungry already, um, but yeah, so just a lot of really uh, great things happening. And of course, the weather is beautiful. We can go outside today when, before it starts raining, of course, um, and just, just marvel in God's goodness and God's grace uh, and in his creation. So this morning, we are uh, continuing our journey with Jesus. Uh, last week, we joined Jesus uh, as he joined his mother Mary. Uh, Jesus and his disciples joined Mary as they attended a wedding in a town called Cana. And we learned last week kind of what was involved in the marriage arrangement at that time, that marriage wasn't for necessarily romantic love. It was more a business arrangement for survival, for protection, for things like that. And we learned what it means also for the church to be the, the bride of Christ, this arrangement that Jesus has made to allow us to enter into eternal life and to teach us how to be perfect as the Father is perfect. And we ended the service uh, by asking two questions. First, how much do I care about those who do not know Christ? And the second question was, how much am I willing to do to share the gospel with God's enemies? And we talked about how the enemies of God are people who still continue to live against his, his will, his commandments that don't know Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to rejoin this wedding feast. Uh, this unknown couple in John chapter 2, uh, who we discovered last week, Mary probably was really, really close to. Uh, and we're going to see how much uh, Jesus cared and how much he did to share who he was and why he came and to share with these people who maybe uh, weren't close to God how much he wanted to do to show them that God is real, that God is there, that God cares for them. So we're going to read in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding and his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And last week, we talked about this wedding feast. We said the wedding feast normally lasted like seven days, right? So there was a lot of food and a lot of, of wine and drinks. Each day was a different feast meal. And the family 
the family of the, the, the bride, the family of the groom, would plan this wedding for like a year. And what, part of what they planned was having enough food and drinks for a week for however many people they expected to come to the wedding. And they did this because hospitality played a huge and crucial role in that society. And, and we're not talking about hospitality like we think of it today, where we invite friends over and we have a cookout and we hang out and around the fire pit and then we kick everybody out so we can go to bed. This was not the hospitality that we're talking about here. In biblical times, hospitality was considered a moral imperative. It was crucial to people. And more often than not, hospitality dealt more, than, uh, more with welcoming strangers than it did with welcoming friends. And the Old Testament is filled with the commandment of God regarding welcoming the stranger welcoming uh, what he called the sojourner, those who would journey from other places and would come here. We might call them immigrants. So they might have been displaced from their homes. They might have been displaced from their countries. And they've come to find a home among God's people, the people of Israel. And Leviticus 19, verses 33 to 34 says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And when God ends something with, I am the Lord your God, he wants you to pay attention to it. That is like his signature. That's like the John Hancock on the Declaration of Independence. It's there. Look at this. I stand behind what I say wholeheartedly. So we think it's a little bit important. Malachi chapter 3 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That's another one of those uh, signature kinds of things when prophets are speaking to the people and they're using the words that God has given them directly they will say something like thus says the Lord or says the Lord of hosts this is God's word it is not up for debate and if we look at this idea of this moral imperative I mean if we go back a little bit he is comparing people who thrust away the sojourner and the judgment that he will bring to them with sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress hired workers, those who oppress the widow, those who oppress the fatherless. Thrusting the sojourner aside is as bad as all of those things. This is what God is saying. This is the moral imperative. And we look at this imperative of hospitality 
of welcoming in the stranger. And it came from God's desire for Israel, for his people to remember that they once were visitors in a strange land as well. They went to Egypt to escape the famine, right? Joseph's family, he brings his family to Egypt. There were 70 people in his family and they grew into a nation. And once they grew into a nation and they were still considered sojourners, right? They were, I mean, they lived there, but they were kind of still outsiders. And when the time came, they weren't treated well. They were turned into slaves. They were beaten. They were tortured. And God wants them to remember. Remember where you came from. Remember where you came to. And remember what those people did to you. Don't do that. That's basically what God's saying. Don't do that. Treat them like you would treat yourself. Now, as time went on, uh, you know, we, we see these, these passages of Scripture, and, and as time went on, the people of Israel developed just this heightened sense of hospitality for all people and a desire to demonstrate that they did indeed wish to fulfill the needs and wants of anyone who would, they would call a guest. Sometimes they went really, really far. Sometimes people would see maybe a lack of hospitality for, for one reason or another and judge these people, saying, well, you're not really the people of God because you're not hosting these people right. Maybe you've run out of food. Maybe you've run out of wine. So we come back to this wedding feast, and Mary tells Jesus, they've run out of wine. And to run out of food or drink at a wedding, at this big public festival, not only was it a source of embarrassment, possibly significant embarrassment for this family, but they're not meeting the moral imperative of God's command to treat the sojourner as you would treat yourself, to treat the guest as you would treat yourself. Now, we don't know why they ran out of wine. We don't know, you know, did they not plan for enough wine? Were there more guests than, than came? Uh, how many of you have ever planned a wedding and more people show up than uh, you planned for because people don't know how to RSVP, right? Of course, we had the opposite problem. A lot of people RSVP'd and we paid for all of these meals and people never showed up. But whatever the reason, these people at least, at the very least, faced significant embarrassment. And because they did and because Mary was so close to this family, Mary came to her son, Jesus. And she said to Jesus, they have no wine. This is so embarrassing. This is going to hurt this family's reputation. They have no wine. And Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My, my, my hour has not yet come. How many of you gentlemen have called your wife woman? <laughs> Everybody's here. Yeah. And the women are like, yeah. This is not the same thing, uh, Jesus calling Mary woman, as when we look at our wives and say, woman! 
This, yeah, it sounds pretty strange. His mother tells him about this, you know, this thing. And, you know, woman, what does this have to do with me? But really, woman wasn't the, the insult, right? And we actually see uh, Jesus uh, call Mary woman uh, a couple of times in the Gospels, including when he's hanging on the cross. But we'll talk about that a little later. But Jesus says, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's like when my wife comes and tells me that the faucet is leaking in the bathroom and I say, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> That's what it sounds like, right? Jesus here seems to want Mary to understand something. And it's not that, you know, this what does this have to do with me part. It's the my hour has not yet come part. See, Jesus is standing at this wedding, and the first thing he hears from his mother that we read about is, they have no wine. And I have to wonder if Jesus, three years before his death on the cross, has already started making plans for that thing that we call the Last Supper. And I wonder if Jesus has started to think about the representations that he's going to make of his body and his blood. And of course, we know uh, if we've been around church at all, if we've taken communion before, that the wine represents his blood and the bread represents his body. And if this is true, if Jesus already has this whole plan in motion, and he's already thinking about the wine being equated to his blood. Does it mean that he's already looking forward to his death three years before it happens? According to the other Gospels, and even according to John, this is likely in John 7, for example, scribes and Pharisees wanted to arrest Jesus, but verse 30 says his hour had not yet come. In Matthew 26, when Jesus told his disciples to plan for the Passover, this last supper, he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. I think Jesus, when he started his ministry, already knew the end, already knew what was going to happen, even this last supper, this last Passover. And I just wonder if when Mary says they have no wine, is he thinking about the wine as wine? Or is he thinking about the wine as salvation? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. What John does tell us at the end of his book is that Jesus did and said so many things that if he were to write them all down, the entire world couldn't contain the books that were written about. But I think Jesus is already looking forward, looking ahead to his death. We don't really know why Jesus said what he said. But we do know why Mary said what she said next. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And I want to give you a spoiler alert here. Uh, Jesus is going to perform a miracle. Okay? Here in Cana, this is considered Jesus' first public miracle, turning 
Uh, well, I won't go there yet. But I want to ask you a question. We're going to leave the wedding just for a little bit. What do you think of when you think of a miracle? Many of us have different definitions in mind, and, and I would say that 99.9999% of the time, they are wrong as far as what we think a miracle to, is. People today have really low views of miracles because the word is used so often and so loosely. It's kind of like that word that you know I hate. Awesome. Right? God is awesome. Pizza is not awesome. Right? But this word miracle has been so used and overused and misused for so long. You have miracles everywhere. You can go to the grocery store and buy Miracle Whip. You can go to Home Depot and buy Miracle Grow. Yesterday, I literally, and I'm not even kidding, what was it, 15 minutes, 10 minutes after I had finished, I'd sent the sermon on, the slides on to Dana, and Wendy and I were talking, and she comes in to my, my little home office there, I'm just finishing up, and she walks up and she shows me my travel coffee mug, which is fairly old, and it, it, she has told me time and time again, it's so stained, why is it so stained? It's like, well, it's had coffee in it for years and years and years. She literally walked up to me and showed me the coffee. She's like, look, it's starting to come clean. I used this thing. What was it? Dawn Power, Dawn Power Wash. <laughs> I used this Dawn Power Wash, and it's a miracle. The stain has come out. And I said, you're going to hear about this tomorrow. I, I am not... This is absolutely, Wendy will tell you. And <laughs> but we see these things. You can buy these, these products and you re watch all of these infomercials. This is a miracle product to grow your hair and change your complexion and grow your grass and, and fix the engine of your car. And it's a miracle. But it's not a miracle. A miracle is a direct and visible act of God that cannot be explained through science or reason. And even Christians no longer use the word miracle in the proper way. There was a group of youth that were out on a, a boat off the coast of Miami, uh, and a storm came up and, their, and flooded their engine. Their engine stopped, and this was a severe storm, and the waves were getting higher and higher, and the boat started to sink. And it was... Uh, miles outside of the regular Coast Guard route. So you know the Coast Guard, they patrol different areas of, of the sea, of the ocean, and it was outside of their route. But the Coast Guard happened along that way. I, we don't know why, possibly because the storm was kind of pushing them off of their route, maybe, but they rescued the youth. They got them all into their boat. They took them back to the shore in Miami. And people called it a miracle. But it really doesn't fit the term miracle. Fits into something else, another category. There are three ways that God works in history. The first is called providence. This is just the general, every day, this is the guidance that God gives us 
It fully conforms with natural law. It, for, it, it, it conforms with logic. It makes sense. But we know that God is active every day. The second is special providence. And this is when God still works within a natural law. He still works within the frame of logic, but with such amazing timing that it seems quite, and I'll use the word, awesome. That's what these kids in this boat were experiencing. They were experiencing God's special providence. That's how they were rescued. Not because God picked up the Coast Guard boat and moved it over here so that it could be, they could find the kids. But through whatever laws of nature, through the tide, through the storm, whatever it was, that boat got moved off its course and happened along to rescue these kids. Special providence. This also explains this seeming miracle of the catch of fish. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about this catch of fish that Simon, Andrew, James, and John had right before they started following Jesus. No one had ever caught that many fish at one time before. It was huge. It wasn't a miracle because it still conformed itself to the laws of nature. They were on the Sea of Galilee where fish live and lots of fish live. They were out in deep water and most of the time the, the, the more deep the water the more fish you're going to experience. Now did God steer the current of the water to get all of those fish in that one area? Maybe, maybe not. But he still worked within the laws of nature for that catch. This is special providence. And the third way that God works through history is through the miracle. And this is when God looks at nature, God looks at law, and he says, just brushes it all away. And he reaches down into time. He reaches down into our history and does what cannot be done cannot be done logically, it cannot be done through the laws of nature, it cannot be explained by any law or knowledge that we have as human beings. The miracle is supernatural, outside of nature. Now does Mary expect Jesus to perform a miracle when she says, they have no wine? I don't think so. I don't think Mary is expecting for Jesus to do something like what he ends up doing. I think that Mary has watched Jesus grow over the last 30 years in wisdom and in stature. As we read in Luke 2.52, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. She knows her son has exquisite wisdom. And because he has exquisite wisdom, she thinks he can figure this out. They have no wine. I'm going to go to the smartest guy in the room, and I'm going to see if he can figure this out. 
And isn't that what we usually do? If we don't know how to do something, we go to the smartest person we know about that thing and we ask, what do we do? How do we fix this? And that's what I think that Mary was doing. She thought that Jesus could help some way. He'd have something in mind. So let's see what happens. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. So 20 or 30 gallons times six, that's a lot of water, right? And they've got these six uh, jars. Jesus said to them, now draw some out, that's the water that they just filled these jars with, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. There's a lot that we could unpack here in this passage. We're not going to unpack it all today. We're not going to talk about the, the jars and the purification and all of that stuff. Well, that could be a whole sermon by itself. We're not going to talk about a lot of the things that are happening here. What we're going to say is Jesus turned water into wine. And just in case you're wondering, this is not um, grape juice. This is actually wine. This is stuff that people, if they drink enough of it, will get drunk on. I just wanted to put that out there because so many churches teach, well, it wasn't really wine. We are not supposed to drink wine. Jesus drank wine. And Jesus preached against drunkenness. He didn't preach against drinking wine because he drank wine here. And he provided wine for a, a lot of people in this miracle. But I want to talk about the miracle for a second. This is a miracle, a supernatural occurrence that defies description, that defies logic. Because Jesus, in this miracle, circumvents the natural law of winemaking. Think about what that means. Jesus starts with water. And of course, everything, life is water, right? Anybody ever watch Survivor? Yeah, if you don't have water, you're gonna die. And it's true. But Jesus starts with water, the liquid. And then Jesus replaces a couple of steps planting, growing, and maintaining the vineyard to grow the grapes, working and harvesting and crushing the grapes so that you can put it into barrels so that it can ferment. And after it's fermented a little bit, then we put it into jars or bottles, and we have wine. Jesus took all of that part away. It takes three to five years to get from an initial planting of a brand new grapevine through to the first harvest and the first vintage bottling. Three to five years, 
Jesus replaced five years of natural work in a second. That is a miracle. Now, it does seem like a weird first miracle, doesn't it? I mean, we read in the Gospels that Jesus healed the sick and he called them the storms and he walked on water. He raised the dead. Why water into wine as your first miracle? This wasn't or doesn't seem like, if we just kind of read this on its surface, it doesn't seem like an important miracle. It doesn't seem like that this is a necessity. This seems like a miracle of luxury. But it's not. If we think of the actual miracle, yes, it seems like that. Water into wine, miracle of luxury. But think about why Jesus performed the miracle. What was Mary really saying to Jesus? They have no wine. She was asking Jesus to act so that those close to her, her close friends, would avoid embarrassment. Social embarrassment. Maybe the social sin, if you will, of appearing to defy the moral imperative of God the Father to take care of your guests. And that's what these people would be looked like or looked as. If they ran out of wine, they would likely be socially ostracized. They would be criticized. People would walk down the street and look at them and not have really nice things to say about them not have really nice thoughts to think about. Mary wanted to protect her friend's dignity. And that is what many of the miracles that Jesus does that we read about in the Gospels, that's what they were meant to do on a human level to, pre to preserve dignity. The dignity of the sick. The dignity of the dying the blind, the deaf, people who were living lives where they needed to beg just to survive, and people would walk down the street and look at them just with contempt, if they looked at all. Jesus was preserving dignity, even in this miracle of turning water into wine. There was also another result of Jesus' first miracle. At the end of the wedding, John writes, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus did this miracle, and by doing so, his disciples believed in him. That's why Jesus performed some of his other miracles, like walking on water like calming the storm, calming the seas. These miracles, if you read in, about them in Scripture, they were only done in front of his disciples, in front of the 12. When he walked on water, it was only 12 people there in the boat. When he calmed the sea, there were only 12 other people there in the boat. Some of Jesus' miracles are done so that we might believe. And Jesus did miracles because 
He wanted to show the power and the love of God. He wanted to show that God the Father loves the world and loves the people in it, just as he instructs us to do. I mean, ultimately, Jesus, through his miracles, was preaching his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Turn away from the death of your soul and let God bring it back to life. Repent. Realize the full power, glory, and love of a Father in heaven who wants nothing more than to spend eternity with you. Repent. Jesus did the miracle at the wedding of Cana to help some people save face. Jesus did some other miracles to help people save their dignity. And he did more miracles to help people save their souls through repentance. We find that everything, everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said, point back to the purpose of his ministry to point people towards repentance and a relationship with God the Father. That's what miracles are. And oftentimes we pray for miracles, don't we? We pray that God will miraculously heal someone who is sick or who is dying. I prayed I couldn't tell you how many times when the three months when my mom went into the hospital, had her open heart surgery, and I watched her laying there in the bed. She never came home from open heart surgery. She was in hospitals and, and rehabilitation centers for three months. And I prayed and I prayed, God, heal her, bring her home. And he didn't. And I was angry for a lot of years. One of the things we have to remember, yes, that God is a God of love. God is a God who wants to preserve our dignity. God is a God who does want to heal us, but he wants to heal us at a spiritual level first. And I'm not saying that my mother laid there and deteriorated and died so that God could save my soul, but yeah, maybe I am saying that. Maybe that's not why he did it. But that's what he used in me to bring me back to a relationship with him. To bring me back to the idea that I don't tell God what to do. God does what he does. That's called providence. Should we pray for miracles today? Absolutely. Should we expect miracles to happen? Yes. But when they don't, it's time for us to start understanding that that prayer is not answered for a reason. We might not ever understand the reason. But we need to understand 
who God is and that God loves us regardless of his answer to a prayer. God cares for us. God wants us. And if God gives us a miracle, then we praise him for it. And if he doesn't, then we praise him for it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, warmer weather. We thank you for cold weather. We thank you for everything that you have put into place to support our physical lives here on earth. But Father, infinitely more than that, we thank you for what you put into place to bring our spiritual lives back into relationship with you, to, to raise us from the dead spiritually. Father, you see our needs. You see the things that are happening in our ourselves, our families, our community, our world. And Father, we will continue to pray for you to intercede in some way. Father, help us not to be surprised if that intercession comes through the work that you would have us do. Bless this time of communion that we're entering into. Bless this time of remembrance. The things that you did to bring us spiritually back to life. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we are going to uh, commemorate the Lord's death by coming to the Lord's table for communion. During his ministry, Jesus performed several food miracles. Uh, we just learned about the, the turning of water into wine. He also fed over 9,000 people over two miracles with 12 loaves of bread. you imagine feeding 9,000 people with 12 loaves of bread? How big were the loaves that Jesus was using? Jesus used his miraculous power to care for the physical needs of 9,000 people. And then, at his Last Supper, and maybe the disciples remember back to these miracles, Jesus said that the bread was representative of his body that would be broken for them less than 12 hours later. He did that first miracle at Cana, the wine. And he tells his disciples at this Last Supper that the wine that they are drinking is a symbol of his blood poured out at his death, which was going to happen in less than 12 hours. And that the purpose of his death, the purpose of the bread and the wine, is to remind us of the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus tells his disciples and he tells us that his death is for the salvation of many. We talked last week about how many have not yet experienced salvation through Jesus Christ. And as we prepare our spirits for communion this morning, as we confess our sins, as we come to this table, 
in a worthy fashion. Let us remember the miracles that Jesus performed during his ministry that brought life and health to the bodies of those to whom he ministered. And let us pray for those whose spirits have not yet been brought to life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to take a couple of minutes to prepare ourselves for communion. We have uh, someone coming up to play music. And in a couple of minutes, I'll call the deacons up uh, who are going to be serving the bread and the cup this morning. Paul writes of that which he received from Jesus, that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ. In the same way he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he passed it to his disciples, and said, take this and drink. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of many. Each time you drink it, do it in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ. For each time that we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do celebrate the Lord's death until he comes. We are called to be used in God's special providence. We're called to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, minister to the sick, and visit the prisoner. We are a part of God's plan. And when you work in a way that shows God's special providence to those who don't know him, they might think it's a miracle. Minister to those people this week. Pray for them. Pray for those who are still embroiled in battle in Ukraine and across the world. And pray for one another. God bless you this week.